Well, good morning. My name is uh, Ken, and I am indeed a software engineer by trade, but I am uh, excited to be here with you today. Uh, it is great to be gathered with us each this morning. So I did take Justin's uh, Basics of Preaching class a few uh, years ago now. Um, I like to plug the course every time I speak. Uh, if, even if this isn't how you see yourself playing out, you're your uh, service to God and service to the body, I still recommend the course anyway, as it is um, some valuable tools for sharing uh, your story and sharing God's story with others. Um, I, I do plug the course. I'm not always sure that I'm the best spokesman for that course. Um, I'm pretty sure I break a rule every single time. Um, so today you're not going to hear a central text three points in an application. I apologize for that in advance. We can debate whether that's a good idea. Uh, probably, I hope that at least once it'll be fine. So um, I'm setting up a context also for, for that the whole Bible is the context I want to set. So yikes, I only went 20 minutes over this morning. No, just kidding. Uh, I, I, I say that so that way if I go five minutes over, you go, well, at least it wasn't 20. Um, but uh, we'll get into it. I do have a goal for today. Um, I do hope that we have an opportunity today to celebrate, and we've, we've started that off through song. Um, I also hope that as I seek to serve here today that I will help us calibrate. And there is so much disinformation in our culture today. There are so many people contributing to the noise that are so far from God and so far from the truth that I hope that today we have an opportunity to come back and be reminded, to come back and recalibrate, to come back and... Uh, align our minds and hearts to the Lord. And I also hope that we get an opportunity to launch today, that I am able to commission you to do all that he has designed for you and prepared for you in advance. Um, let me pray to that end. Father God, we thank you for this day. I thank you that you've given me the opportunity uh, to speak. In many ways, you've been uh, preparing me for many, many years uh, with this message and I'm thankful that, uh, that you've given me the opportunity to, um, to share. I pray that, I, that as we celebrate in worship, that as we look to calibrate and as we look to commission, all our eyes and hearts would be fixed on you, and that we would be about your mission and about your will. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So one of the areas of my service throughout the years has been teaching elementary-aged kids. And in doing so, we created this way of telling God's story that through pictures and, and through the story, the idea was that kids would not only learn it, but also maybe even be able to share it. Um, I want to go through this with you. Again, nothing groundbreaking here, nothing, um, nothing maybe new, but to calibrate and to remind. In many ways, Tristan started this off last week. Um, it's been interesting. We didn't plan, but in many ways, we kind of created a little sermon series here. Uh, so I will dig into it. And remember, uh, the Jewish history was oral for, a really, oral for a really long time. They told their stories over and over again, passing them down from generation to generation. And we, we don't do that very often. We don't maybe connect ourselves to the stories of the Old Testament, even though it is our story. And through this, I hope that we begin to get a reminder and an idea that God is up to something big. So let's walk through it, and also I apologize in advance for the pictures. They were meant to be simplistic and childlike and succeeded very well, um, but, and they weren't quite as polished as I had remembered them, uh, 
but I think they'll do for today. All right, so let's start at the beginning. In the beginning was God, and there was nothing but God. And God was so powerful that when he spoke, nothing became everything, right? And when he spoke, we saw creation, we saw heavens and earth created, we saw land and sea created, we see the birds of the air, we see the fishes of the sea. And in all these things, God looked upon them and said they were good. And then in his temple of earth, he created his image bearers. Created in his image, he put man and woman, Adam and Eve, and he did something very unique with them. He breathed life into them. No other part of creation had life breathed into it like he did with humans. And in this temple, in this garden, they had the opportunity to live perfectly with him. They had everything they needed. They had all the food they needed. They had all the, the, the perfect relationship with God that, that was required, that was an, available to them. They had the perfect life. And they only had one rule. God said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, surely you will die. So they lived with God for some time in, in a perfect relationship. And then one day, a serpent came. A serpent that could talk, fed Eve with lies, and told her that you won't die if you eat of the tree. You will just be like God, and he doesn't want you to be like God. And she believed, and she took from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and ate, and Adam followed in her footsteps and ate of the tree as well. And in this act, sin has entered into the world. Sin is missing the mark. Sin is disobedient to God's plan. And even though uh, sin did enter into Adam and Eve at this time, we see that it not only did that, it also permeates our world today. We look at God's creation and it is sometimes hard to see the good. Right? We see our sin. We see my sin. I see my sin. I, we see all of our sin. And the evil of the world is so easy to see. And God's creation can sometimes look not good. But God, who is rich in mercy and grace, showed Adam and Eve mercy. Mercy is a punishment that you deserve that doesn't come. Grace is a gift you didn't earn that you were given. And God showed Adam and Eve mercy and grace. Surely they would die, but they didn't. God, not only did he spare them, he gave them a world to live in where they could start a family and a new relationship with him. Where God and man's domain were together, they are now separate. But, but an opportunity for them to, to live. He also made a promise. I'm sorry, the picture looks like maybe it's a broken promise. It's not a broken promise. It's a two-part promise. The two parts of the promise that God made to them was, one, I will send a fixer. I will send a redeemer. I will send a savior one day to pay the price for your sin, to pay the price for my sin, to pay the price for all sins. And the second part is one day I will create a new heaven and a new earth that is sin, without sin, that is perfect, and the domain of man and God will, want, will overlap again. So we see throughout the, the Old Testament, we see the stories of God's people living out what it means to live in a fallen and sinful world. He, he walks us through stories of uh, men like Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, we see Abraham there with his really long beard and Isaac with a smaller beard and then Jacob's got a goatee. But we see them there and we see Abraham live out his life and we see him succeed and follow God. 
We see him fail where he, his own desires take root and he plays those out. But we get to see it. We get to see God's people uh, playing out what it means to follow through, follow in God's promises. Lots of stories of Abraham succeeding and failing, Isaac succeeding and failing, Jacob succeeding and failing. And then one day we come to the point where Jacob is reminded of the promise that he made to Abraham, that God said, your descendants will be like the number of the grains of sand on the beach, the number of the stars in the sky, and I am going to name you Israel. And when Jacob is renamed to Israel, that name actually goes forth and becomes the name of the whole nation of God's people. Jacob has 12 sons. I did not memorize them and won't read them all, but I know that number 11 is Joseph because we know a lot about Joseph, right? He could, he could read dreams and interpret dreams, and God used him in a mighty way. You see, he interpreted some dreams that made it look like that he was going to be exalted and his brothers laid low, and so they conspired to kill him and in the end showed mercy and just sent him off to slavery. So he goes, he goes as a slave into Egypt, And while in Egypt, God uses him and raises him up to second in command. And in so doing, it uh, through God, through through the visions and the interpretation of dreams, Joseph saves all of Egypt from a famine. Not only Egypt, but a lot of the surrounding countries, including he's reunited with his family in Egypt. And because of Joseph's great service to the Pharaoh, Pharaoh rewards the nation of Israel with a place to live and exalts them. And they have... Uh, have, a, uh, have a time of promise, a time of, of celebration, and a time of, of prosperity. However, over time, the Pharaoh changes over. Over time, they forget the contributions of J- Joseph and the Israelites, and they begin, the Egyptians begin to worry. So they enslave, they push down, they, they burden the Israelite people to the point where at one point that they the Pharaoh gives a proclamation that the, the firstborn of every Hebrew family should be killed. But one, one mother is able to put her baby in a basket, put him in the river, and send him down the river. And we see God spare this one baby, and God does something big with him, right? He, this is Moses. This is a, a baby who grows up in the Pharaoh's family, who... Um, who is also an Israelite, and he lives in that tension between being both Pharaoh's family and Israelite. So one day, God calls on him, and he calls him to do a mission for the Israelite people. He says, go tell the Pharaoh it's time for us to move. It's time for the people of Israel to leave Egypt. But Pharaoh says no. And the Israelite nation, probably about a million at this time, is, is still enslaved in Egypt, and God sends 10 different plagues onto the nation of Egypt, where um, the, the seas turn to blood, the locusts come and devour their crops, the day comes night, all sorts of plagues that God sends. And each time Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, and Pharaoh says no. And then the 10th one, God says, I will send an angel over the land, and the firstborn of every family will be taken. However, if you sacrifice a lamb, and place his blood on your doorpost, I will pass over that home, and you will be saved. So the Israelite nation does this. They, they put the blood on their door, the doorpost, and the Egyptian families do not. The angel passes over, 
and there's crying and weeping in the Egyptian households, for they have lost their children. Israelites are saved, and at this moment, Pharaoh says, yes, it is time for you to go, go. So they pack up very quickly. We see this celebrated in the Passover feast where there's no yeast because they didn't have time to wait for it to, to rise, and the nation leaves quickly. And off they go, a million people going out of town, right? They, they head out, and as they're heading towards the Red Sea, Pharaoh changes his mind and sends his army after them. But God does something big. He opens up the sea. They walk across on dry land. When the Egyptian army follows, the sea closes, and they are destroyed and conquered. So the Israelite people have an opportunity to be free from their enslavement, and so they head off into the wilderness. And you see in this picture a big W for wilderness, but I think also that W could stand for whiners, right? The, the Israelites become whiners at this point. You know, uh, what are we going to eat? We had, at least we had food back in Egypt. We don't know what, you don't even know where we're going. At least we had leadership back in Egypt. But all the while, God provides them the Ten Commandments, these rules and guidelines they can follow, manna from heaven, uh, the, the, the water through the rock, and he's continually with them by day and by night, leading them to the point where he leads them up to a promised land. And he tells them that they can go into this land and take it. And even though he has fulfilled every single one of his promises up to this point, he's seen them, Abraham's family prosper, Isaac's prosper, Jacob's family prosper, rescued them from Egypt, they do not trust the Lord. And so he punishes them by sending them back into the wilderness for 40 days. We're listening? All right, good. 40 years. He sends them back into the wilderness for 40 years. And in the wilderness, they continue to wonder what it is that God has in store for them and begin to continually question him, continually go through this back and forth of, of following after God and failing and following after God and failing. Eventually, he rises up Joshua to be a leader, and Joshua does send the Israelite nation into the promised land. And we see again another time of prosperity, another time where they flourish, and another time where they're able to live out a, a beautiful picture of what it is to be God's people. And God uses judges at this time, which are men and women that can discern the nature of God and share that with the Israelite people, and he uses these judges in a mighty way during this time. However, this also starts the cycle where the Israelites, they follow after God, they follow after their judge, the judges of the time, and then eventually they decide they've got this. They're in control. They have it under control. And then things get really bad, and they start crying out to God, things are bad, please come save us. So he sends a judge, and they follow after the God, and it's going great. And then they decide they've got this, and they don't need God anymore. And then things get really bad, and they say, we need you, Lord. And so he sends a judge, and so they start following after God. And you see the pattern just develop over and over and over again. And it's a great picture because I think we can all relate. And at some point, the people decide that the real problem is they need kings. And so God lets them have kings. And the kings are the rulers. And again, as humans are apt to do, they, they fall into the cycle again. Some are good, some are bad, some go well, and some do not. So eventually, God sends another nation to come and conquer them and send them off into exile. While they are in exile, we, we meet, Dan this is the story of Daniel, these are the stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where we get a good picture of what it is like to be God's people living in a place that's not your home under ungodly authority. But one day, through the man named Nehemiah, God uh, sends the people back home to Jerusalem. 
They rebuild the temple wall and they begin another period of prosperity. And then we enter into a period of time that we kind of know of today. We kind of talk about this 400 years of silence in between what is the last known written uh, part of the Old Testament heading into God's next big thing. And I also often wonder if it just doesn't seem necessarily like God was always, that God would be silent for 400 years. And I begin to wonder, I also wonder if, if really the story was the people quit listening. The people weren't listening. They, they, they allowed the leaders of the day to be their voice, to be their, uh, to, to replace God in their lives. And so many of them missed God's really big thing that he did next. The, the moment in time when he sent his son to be born as a baby, to live a perfect and sinless life. We see him born in a manger, in a simple beginnings, but grow to be something big that benefits every single person on earth. We see him grow. We don't see a lot about him growing. We, at, at the beginning, things are fairly private. We, we see some stories of him in the temple. But eventually, at age 30, he begins to have a more public ministry. And in this public ministry, he talks about I am's. A lot of I am's. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Hey, what do you say I am? And we begin to see that he is the Messiah. He is the fixer. He is the saver that God promised. So his story and his teaching and what he, what he points to are so against what the leaders of the day are teaching and saying about God that they conspire to kill him. They try him for a crime he didn't commit. They punish him and declare him, they convict him and punish him by death on a cross. This is bad, but yet it is also good. The blood of Christ shared that Christ spilled on the cross is the way in which the punishment that Adam and Eve should have had for their sin, surely they would die. The wages of sin are death that all of us are due to pay, but Christ's death on the cross eliminated that punishment for us all. Those of us who believe can be white clean. But he didn't stop there. He didn't stop there. He went into the tomb. He was placed in the tomb. He conquered death, and he rose again from the dead, that each one of us who believes would now have an opportunity to have eternal life with God the Father, with God the Son, with God the Holy Spirit. He spends some time on earth with his disciples, and reminding them of the things he taught and pointing them to a future. He commissions them to go off to tell the message not only to God's people, but to all people. All the people are now part of God's family. What was unclean is now clean. The great commission is that it's no longer just the Jewish nation, but it is the whole world that needs God's message. And this began the church age. In the church age, we see it develop through the first century Christians. We see Paul's missionary journeys. We see the idea that church, while we're thankful for these buildings that we get to um, worship in and gather in, is the church is not the building. It is the people. It is the message. It is the way. It is the, the going, and it is the, the um, sending that is part of the church. And then I come to a slide that is blank. Um, the Jewish nation was pretty transparent about their successes and failures, successes and failures. 
But it's interesting to me and maybe bugs me just a little bit that, that our history seems to end here. The, that we haven't followed through with keeping track of the good and the, the bad in our, of, our, of our history. So I, I'll put out there a homework task for you to go and look at some of what went on from, say, year 100 to maybe we start to connect when Martin Luther is is starting his reformation, or even from Martin Luther to today. What has God been doing, and what have the people of God been failing at? We could learn a lot from that history. But we know one thing also, one more slide, we know that one day Christ will return, and he will create a new heaven and a new earth, and man's domain and God's domain will be overlapped again, and we will have an opportunity to again enter into a perfect relationship with God for eternity. So in looking at all of this, and looking at this, this final slide and seeing it all together, uh, we can see that God is up to something big. This is God's story. This is his story. This is history. From the beginning to now, this is our story. If we want to go back to George Washington and decide that that's our history, that's not far enough back. If we want to go to first century Christians and say that's our history, we're not going far enough back. Our history starts all the way back at Adam and Eve, and we can see that God has been up to something big, and, he's, and he is good. So, it is easy to see this story and to hear this history and to, to, to think that God only wants big things. We hear stories of modern-day heroes, and we, we wonder if that is what God desires of us. Right? We see stories like Bill Bright, who in 1951 started Campus Crusade, now called Crew, to where there's over 20,000 missionaries around the world. We see uh, the story of Robert Pierce, who started a group called World Vision, who now have revenues up around uh, $1.5 billion a year is spread throughout the nation, for the, uh, throughout the world for those in need. And oh, by the way, he left World Vision and then went and founded Samaritan's Purse as well. Big, big stories. There's lots of big things going on around us. Salvation Army, Mercy Ships, Youth with a Mission, Pioneers. They all have names of people attached to them that founded them. And so it's easy to get caught up in the big. Add to that the modern-day missionary families that we see that leave everything to go and live in foreign lands and to, to, to proclaim the name of God in, in these uh, sometimes adverse conditions or uh, persecuting nations. Um, and we can sometimes want to look at their accomplishments and see how we measure up. And church bodies and church leadership can lots of times get caught up in, we need bigger churches, we need bigger programs, we need bigger, bigger, bigger. And I've wondered about this mindset for many, many years. It has seemed to me that too often I was left with a guilty feeling of how my role wasn't measuring up, how my service wasn't big enough for God. And sometimes as I served in leadership, I often wondered if too often that was the message that we were sending. So today I get the opportunity to tell you that you are free to pursue the small. That you can shake off the heavy weight of go big or go home. Now if you're called to something, if you have a passion and you have an energy and that is towards something that you see is big, go. Do it. If God is behind it, he will, he will make it succeed. But and maybe I'm talking to the other 99% of us, that God has called us to the small. 
few weeks ago, Justin spoke on a great reversal in God's kingdom, and it was that the least shall be the greatest. And today I add to that great reversal that small is big. The Bible mentions many people that are just, just barely mentioned, but yet they contributed to the kingdom in a way that is still having a ripple effect today. We see the story of Lydia mentioned barely briefly, but she opens up her home to Paul in a time of need to allow him to further his mission and his ministry. We see Tabitha, who is known as always doing good and helping the poor. And then we go on to see her raised from the dead through the power of God, Peter. Onesimus, a runaway slave, he converts. And through this, Paul uses it to write the letter to Philemon that we all benefit from. And then finally, Theophilus, who most of us should, having come here for the last uh, while, uh, know as the man who may have likely financed Luke's writings. But this is all we really know of him. Sorry, just one second. So all these mentions and others um, have done something small that we are still talking about today. And I'm pretty sure that when they went out and did those things, they had no idea that their actions would be something that we would be discussing uh, 2,000 years later. They were faithful in the small things. So I have a quote I want to walk through that I think says it quite well. It's from a, a man named Francois Fenelon, who was a French archbishop author and royal tutor, and he wrote this in his book, The Seeking Heart. It says, great acts of virtue are rare because they are seldom called for. So in other words, we don't see heroes at work that much because the need for heroes is rare. To be the guy that rushes into a burning building, you need a burning building, you need somebody trapped in it, and you need to be walking by at the right moment. And thankfully, those circumstances don't happen very often, right? So, Great acts of virtue are rare because they are seldom called for. When the occasion for you to do something great comes, it has its own rewards. The excitement, the respect gained from others, the pride that will accompany your ability to do such great things. To do small things that are right continually without being noticed is much more important. These small acts attack your pride, your laziness, your self-centeredness, and your oversensitive nature. Ouch. That kind of stung a little bit. As I think back and realize that how many times did I not act because the big thing wasn't what I was headed towards. The big thing that would bring my name credit, right? The, that it, the small things attack my laziness, right? If I am only going to get up off the couch if it's a big thing, that was painful. To do small things that are right continually without being noticed is much more important these small acts attack your pride, your laziness, your self-centeredness, and your oversensitive nature. It is much more appealing to make the great sacrifices to God, however hard they might be, so that you might do whatever you want with the small decisions of your life. Faithfulness in the little things better pr- proves your true love for God. It is the slow, plodding path rather than the passing fit of enthusiasm that matters. It is the slow, plodding path that matters. So during my study to speak, I, I tried to land on a central text. I never really did land on one, like I said, uh, but one text stood out because having read it before, it didn't quite hit me in the same way that 
coming at it with this perspective did. And I think that's one of the joys of coming to our Bible, is that we have an opportunity to, to read the same passages, the same uh, accounts over and over again, and have different meaning based on what God has taught us up to that point, or the experiences we're going through at that moment. So let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. This then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ, and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring light. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Verse 2 tells us that uh, Paul in his writing says that those that have been given a trust must prove faithful. Not go on to do big things. Not speak in megachurches. Not start revivals. Prove faithful. The slow, plodding path of faithfulness. Faithful isn't a moment in time. It is a consistency proven over time. He goes on to add, this is kind of, I found this again interesting uh, in a new light. I don't even care what you think. I don't even care what I think, right? I am far from innocent, but in the end, I care what God cares about. I care how God will judge me. I want to prove, this is Paul saying, I want to prove faithful. I want to be proven faithful. He reminds us as he goes on, Paul goes on, that he will bring to light what is hidden, not easily noticed by man, and expose the motives of the heart, for out of our heart, our actions flow out of our heart. Our faithfulness, our true love is measured in the faithful little things. God sees the hidden. God sees the little things. And in the end, the reward isn't respect from others, The reward isn't fame or money, but it's so much more valuable. It is to receive the praise from God. So what do these small things look like? Well, first let me talk a little bit about what they don't look like. In this, I want to also make something clear. Um, We talk about our actions being um, up-natured, in-natured, or out-natured. I'm mostly talking about out today. We should still be faithful in the the spiritual disciplines, but those are in pursuits and up pursuits. We're talking about out pursuits when we're out in the world, what they look like. And one of the things they don't look like is um, just coming on a Sunday morning. Uh, Frank Viola and Church Barna said, so often the church service that we quietly sit through every Sunday, year after year, actually hinders spiritual transformation. It does so because it encourages passivity, it limits functioning, and it implies that putting in one hour per week is key to the victorious Christian life. I am thankful that this body, I do not sense that as an overarching issue, uh, but I think we do understand that we are called to more. It doesn't have to be big, it just has to be more and less self-focused. A friend of mine, Rennes Bowers, told me that a church is like an Ohio State football game. 22 people running around crazy in dire need of rest being watched by 100,000 people in dire need of exercise. So I encourage you to, to exercise. So what does that look like? 
with this fear, of, this fear I have of too much emphasis on big movements of God and heroic deeds of great men, maybe there's been a gap in, in leadership and maybe in, I even think about this for my house church, uh, of what it means to move from pew to participant. So let's talk a little bit about what maybe it looks like to live a small life that is kingdom big. big. And I think I can sum up the mindset in two words. Stop compartmentalizing. Stop dividing your tasks into secular versus sacred. For most of us in this room, I have an encouragement. You can make a radical impact on your world and not necessarily change your schedule. You just need to make sure you bring Jesus with you. The world around us is so full of noise of evil that they can't hear the blessed whispers of God. In order to impact culture, we would need to be faithful in the small things, continually breaking through the noise. So here are some practical things. One, don't eat alone. I'm pretty sure it was already pointed out, Tim Chester said it, that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is pretty much the whole time either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Sharing food with others is a great way to share life with others. I encourage you to invite people to eat with you and even pay sometimes. And if you're, the, if, if, um, you're packing your lunch to save money, pack for two. Next, the next time someone asks you if you need help with something, let them help. Even if you don't think you need it. Or even if you're not really convinced they're going to be helpful. When Jesus sent the 72, he instructed them, eat what is offered, stay where you are welcome. We often see that in this, in this moment that someone offering to help is a sign that they need community, that they need purpose. Let them help. Um, there was a, a guy speaking on the radio in the next one that, that I wish I remembered his name, uh, so I give him some credit. He was, I think, an owner of a Chick-fil-A, and he asked, when is the last time you were excited to go to work? Maybe you're lucky and it's tomorrow. Maybe it was Friday um, for, for most of us. I think if you're like me, it's not always, it's certainly not every day. But he added this point, what if your work wasn't about your job but instead a chance to add value to some other person's life. So, try to add value to someone else's life every day. Live out of this desire to add value to other people's life. Next, whatever you find enjoyable, stop doing it alone. Start trying to invite others into that fun part of your life, into your fun times. If you like running and you see the same person running every day, Yes, interrupt them. They'll be annoyed at first, but stop them. Ask them if they would like to run with you. Um, I enjoy playing disc golf, but I probably do it alone too often. Invite someone else along. Grab somebody who's already on the course and do it with them. I also encourage you, you won't see you know, necessarily a verse for this, but read more. Um, and read the same book with others. Uh, God has gifted us with a lot of wisdom through written words that teach us about him and his creation. God gave us a brain to be used. The interesting stat is over 80% of the people will not complete one single book after high school. Um, I think this is not how God designed us. Invite others to read with you. It's a great way to have an impact on others. I ask you to ask the next is, what's next, Lord? Have that question as your lifestyle. And I literally mean what's next, not what do the next 10 years look like? But what is the next step? 
be open to and looking for God to move in single, small steps. And then the last one is uh, called along the ways. Don't be so focused on getting from point A to point B that you miss the moments God is putting in your life along the way. Especially those people he puts in your life consistently. That cashier at the coffee shop that you go to every morning. Um, that that um, person that you bump into at your favorite uh, shopping places. Uh, I'll, I'll say the, uh, the, the person who works at the thrift store that you keep seeing at the movies. Um, uh, so I'll add that um, uh, one of the things I, I uh, meditate on is this idea that God has imprinted on everybody, even those who have no desire to follow him, he's imprinted his, himself on everybody. So when you see someone who's speaking wisdom who isn't following after God, I find it interesting to try to see what is the attribute about God that they're starting to get a glimpse of. What are they connecting with with God even if they don't know they are? And there's an author named Jeff Hayden that I've, I've watched and I've watched people talk about him who wrote a book called The Motivation Myth. And I think he's, do not believe that he would consider himself a follower of God, but yet he is tapping into something here. He is, he, is, he is starting to get something about God that he doesn't know he's getting. Um, his, the idea of the motivation myth is that motivation, the myth is that motivation is the prerequisite to getting things done. He offers that it's not that we need more motivation to get off the couch and start doing something, that motivation is instead the byproduct of actually getting something done. Set for yourself a small step, a small goal, these small things in life, and as you do them, then the motivation will come. He says it like this, knowing you've done what you set out to do, no matter how small or silly it may be, taps into the storehouse of motivation you already have inside you. If he was a follower of, of God, I think he would say, God has imprinted into us the the desire to contribute to community. As we do this more and more, we tap into the storehouse that, is, that God has given us uh, to be faithful in the small things, to impact others around us. One sermon I watched while I was um, preparing for this talked about a story where a man was walking along the beach and he came upon thousands of starfish that were struggling to live because they had washed ashore. There was a group of people picking them up one at a time and tossing them back in, but there were thousands. The man tapped one of the people on the shoulder and said, aren't you wasting your time? You'll never be able to throw them all back in. What you are doing doesn't matter. And the person kept throwing them back in, saying, it mattered to that one. It mattered to that one. It mattered to that one. The noise of evil, as I wrap up, the noise of evil is so loud today break through in someone's life by doing something that matters to them. It can be small today, and it may even seem hopeless. But each time you desire to add value to someone's life, God's love is shared. Paul said it this way, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, that is the prize of the future. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Press on. Matter to someone. Small is big.
So I'll be praying for each of us this week. I'll be praying for myself. Uh, this was um, an important study for me um, as I looked back on uh, many things. I realized that coming out of dry spells in my life was never triggered by, aha, now I know that big thing I'm going to go do in life. It's always been triggered by a, a, a constant beat of small things. And I pray that today that you will do something, that I will do something that matters to someone else. And then I'll do it again tomorrow, and then the next day, and the next day. So go through the power of God and matter to someone today.